Own Your Creativity, Episode 35. The essence of life at the age of 97 was not all these other things that he's lost or couldn't do anymore. It was the opportunity to still be creative. You're listening to the Own Your Creativity podcast with me, your host, Elizabeth Johnston. I'm an author, professor, and podcaster, and I help people tell their story. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. I'm really excited to be talking to Mark Hurwitz. He is a co-founder and chief insight officer at Flip Skills. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, an MBA and master's in physics and math, and combines that with many years of corporate executive and entrepreneurial experience in diverse areas from marketing to HR to actuarial. He is on faculty at Conrad Business Entrepreneurship and Technology Center at the University of Waterloo. He has been recognized with numerous awards for teaching, academic achievement, speaking, professional training, acting, and poetry. Mark is also known for being engaging, interesting, super insightful, and not a woolly-headed academic. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote that stuff anyway? (laughs) Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Elizabeth. My pleasure for being here. So um, I'm really fascinated with Flip Skills and the book that you've co-authored about uh, followership. Followership. And uh, as opposed to leadership and how that's all connected, can you give us a little bit more information about what you do and at Flip Skills and with your new book? Sure. Uh, we uh, we started about ten years ago, a little bit longer than that now. And the Flip actually is an acronym. It stands for Followership, Leadership, Innovation, and Partnerships. We see them all as a whole. Uh, that is in really creative teams. You've got this interplay and dynamic of between followership and leadership. You know, these are roles that we all take on. Sometimes I'll take on a leadership role and other times I'll take on a followership role. And uh, what we do is we help uh, train groups and individuals to work better together in all their roles, whether a team needs to work better for a creative project or whether uh, greater collaboration is needed. Um, that's that's the essence of what we do and we've been doing for a while now uh, and it, it kind of all comes from this recognition that we all do both all the time in all our relationships so we want to try and show up as best as we can in both roles does, does that make sense yeah and so in a, in a group setting is there always just one leader and then everybody else has to follow or can you switch roles around depending on what stage of the project you're at or That's a fantastic question. Uh, In fact, what the research shows is that groups that are the most creative, uh, the most intelligent as a group, share roles. In other words, they take turns. Sometimes uh, one person will take on a leadership role, and then sometimes somebody else takes on a leadership role. And when you do this turn-taking, that's the hallmark of uh, of a great team and of a creative team, frankly. Hmm. But I think that there's some people who are not comfortable with a leadership role. So, you know, in a corporate setting where there are so many team-based projects, how do you help people get out of their comfort zone and be uh, a leader instead of not just always a follower? Right. That's a fantastic question. And the trick to it is is to recognize that, that um, it's skills. You know, being a leader is not about 
being the most charismatic person in the room or always having the right answer to something. In fact, the leader's role is rarely to have the answer. It's to be able to ask good questions and to manage the process. It's about setting the framework for action within which other people get to create. If you, if you think of it, imagine um, a great dance couple, right? Uh, they both have to play their roles really well, and it's a partnership. If, if the leader knows how to lead but the follower doesn't know how to follow, they don't dance well together. But these are just skills that they learn over a period of time. Yeah, some people are going to be better dancers than others, but we can all get better at doing this. And frankly, whether it's at work or not, we all take on leadership or followership roles. If, if you've got kids at home, and, and I, I don't anymore, but I've had a number of kids at home, you know there are times you have to take on that leadership role at home as a parent, and that is about creating the right framework and structure for your your child to actually maximize their potential. And that's really what the leadership role is, and those that's trainable. But I also know a lot of people who are just uncomfortable also in the followership role. So my wife and I took dance lessons, as you might imagine, and... Um, she was not so comfortable following all the time, which made the partnership not work well at those moments. So it's just learning both of these skills and being 100% present in your roles that really makes for great leadership and followership. Mm. I read that story. I think it, it's on your website or somewhere else about, about your dancing lessons, which I think is is a great metaphor for for what you're teaching, you know, with flip skills and um and I think a lot of people can relate to that. I certainly can. I took dance lessons with a partner, and uh, it was really hard to stop leading <laughs> for me. <laughs> as, as my wife once said in a, in a moment of, of weakness, she says, you know, sometimes I lead, and at other times Mark follows. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So... In in your discussion and your conversation here about um, what you do, you keep mentioning the word creativity, and that's great because the show is about creativity. But um, how does creativity figure into uh, a work setting and and what you help uh, teams in a corporate setting do? Yeah, that's that's a number of years ago. I think there was a lot of routine work. Uh, in fact, in in 1980, about 20 percent of work was done in teams because frankly you were given your set routine to do and you carried out the same tasks day after day. And that's still part of work today, but nowadays we do about 80% of our work in teams. And a lot of it is non-routine work. If you think about what you do at work, it could be, uh, well, doing an interview. It, it could be working on a project with a bunch of people. It could be helping a customer navigate their way through um, your your store or your business or a process or something like that. And all of these are fundamentally highly creative work. We've really come into the era of the 21st century, which is all about creative work. We, we've kind of gone past the, I mean, we still have to have the um, the quality that we talked about in the 1980s with all the quality initiatives and the manufacturing and all that kind of stuff. The knowledge work is certainly there as well, but really it's about taking the things we know, the information that's available, and creating new things with it. That's where the real value is happening today in organizations. And do you think that creativity 
for organizations and for individuals who want to work in organizations is actually being taught enough or to the degree that it needs to be in, in universities or technical schools? Well, that's, a, that's an intriguing question. Um, so firstly, let me say that I think of creativity as more than coming up with ideas. Uh, creativity is, is, is a process which starts off by exploring the space. I mean, there's no point coming up with a great answer to the wrong question. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the inquisitiveness that starts with it. It's then the ability to come up with ideas. It's the base of knowledge that you need um, because expertise is really important for creativity. It's being able to develop the ideas, and then ultimately it's being able to execute. I think what we teach really well in schools, for example, and uh, you know, I work in a, in a university, is we teach the, the critical thinking skills to try and discern between good solutions and poor solutions. We give people the expertise, uh, but we don't really do any of the other pieces of that puzzle. We don't really teach people to clarify. We don't really teach them to ideate, and we know that there are good ways to ideate and poor ways to do it. Um, we don't teach them to really develop ideas. So, so there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are definitely missing, and we certainly don't treat creativity as a as a process, um, but rather an aha moment, sort of that eureka moment of inspiration when all of a sudden you realize that you know uh, how how uh, to to figure out whether the crown has gold in it, which is where that comes from, of course. Um, that moment of inspiration, but there's so much that goes into it that's more important than just that moment of inspiration because that we can't really control, mm-hmm. although we affect it. Right. And so, no, we don't spend enough time teaching it. But, but I also don't agree with the perspective that we suppress it either. I, I know there's talk about, you know, do we drive creativity out of children? I don't think we do that either. We just don't emphasize it and, and we don't show people how to be better at it. Mm-hmm. So can you give an example of how creativity manifests in your life or in your work? Oh, my goodness. In almost everything I do, we're constantly being challenged by um, our clients to come up with new ways and new situations in which to help their teams be better. Uh, I also at university teach entrepreneurs. um, And so I have students walking into my office almost on a daily basis basis with their businesses and asking me to help mentor them. Where do I go next? You know, what do I do? Uh, And every time I do that, it's a creative challenge. You know, I really have to begin to understand the question they're asking me. I have to help them develop better ideas for it. Uh, I have to help them figure out how to implement. I mean, there's a whole process. So I can't think of anything important that I think is important that I do in a day that doesn't involve creativity. I mean, I yes, I have to fill out forms and do the bureaucratic paperwork to get things done, but that's not the core of what I do. The core of what I do is really around creativity. Hmm. Was there any time in your life where you felt disconnected from creativity or creative work, and how did that manifest in your life? Yeah, yeah. I think it happens to all of us from moment to moment, but I have one moment in my life which is which is pivotal to a, a lot of things. So if you don't mind uh, having a little bit of a story around mm-hmm. this. Definitely. Okay. okay. Imagine uh, I, I started uh, working in a large organization 
for the first time in my career back in 1997. Up to that point, I'd been in smaller organizations, and I'd in fact even started my own business. And going through that, I, I also did my MBA as I was working in this large organization. In my first five years there, I got three promotions, uh, and I was promoted into the executive ranks. I was given uh, ownership, as it were, over a portfolio of products, which we is one of Canada's largest companies. And this portfolio, when I started, was generating $2 billion a year in revenue for the company. And by the time I'd stopped working with it, it was generating $6 billion a year. And wow. I'll come, come to that in a minute. Yeah, so I was kind of a high flyer. I got great performance reviews every year. And ultimately, I was put into a program for the general managers of the future. Basically, that small cadre of people, me and about five or ten other others, who the company thought that in five or ten or fifteen years would be running the company. So I was doing absolutely fantastically. I graduated from my MBA. I was top of the class and won the gold medal for that as well. So really, everything was going absolutely wonderful. And then, all of a sudden... I got a new boss. <laughs> Here's where the story takes a bit of a turn. About two weeks into uh, her tenure as my boss, she called me into her office and sat me down, said, Mark, we need to talk about something. I said, fine. What's that? She said, well, I don't think your communication skills are particularly good. I, I was flabbergasted. Not good. What are you talking about? The the field calls me in all the time to do sales calls with them, and I get called to do the the opening for the employ you know the annual employee meetings and uh, the associations we belong to. I've done talks for them. I thought she was taking crazy pills. <laughs> this was my internal dialogue. I didn't say you're taking crazy. Pills. <laughs> my internal dialogue. So she continued and said, so I've decided to send you on a course on basic business communications. I, you could have just, I, I, had, I didn't have words, and for me, that's a little unusual. So I went to this course on basic business communication, a course that I probably could have taught myself. And so I was one of those terrible students at the back of the class who was just miserable being there. I was a prisoner there. And I'm afraid that my poor facilitator for the course probably didn't have the best experience with me. I take full blame if you're still out there <laughs> teaching. Anyway, that was the start of not a good year. And by the end of the year, although I still felt I was performing as always, my performance review came back and now I was average. By the end of the second year, my performance review came back and I was below average, even though I was still the same person in the same job. And I was now being given tasks to do like, Mark, go decorate the... Uh, the boardroom. And if you, if you know anything about me at all, this is not a job you would give me uh, to decorate anything. Um, anyway, so I started thinking about what went wrong in that first year uh, as our relationship soured and thinking what I could do about it. And I, this, I kind of went back to my MBA classes and read all about leadership and all those kind of things, and an absolute blank came up, and I did nothing. It was a real creative drought for me. And uh, so our relationship worsened and worsened over a period of about two years, and then it finally hit me. So now I've gone from one of my worst creative periods, because usually when I come up with a problem, 
I develop a solution fairly quickly. And this one was a mystery to me. I went through all the stages almost of grief, if you will, um, anger, denial, whatever they happened to be. And about a year and a half to two years in, I had an aha. I had my fi- finally had my creative moment. And that was that while I was a good leader, while I was technically certainly one of the strongest people in the company and could pick up almost anything, I was a terrible follower. Mm. And that maybe there was something out there, which at the time I called followership and later on followership, that I had never heard about in my MBA, but that was at least as important certainly from a personal perspective, if not even from an organizational perspective, that I needed to find out about. So I'd gone from my creative drought uh, and possibly my least ability to solve a problem to this wonderful uh, kind of life-changing aha. And that was about the same time I met my wife, as a matter of fact. And she was having a similar problem with her boss, having been part of a company that had been acquired during an acquisition. And we started discussing this. She took some of the ideas we were discussing and actually implemented them. And literally within six weeks had gone from a position of wondering if she was going to stay at this company and whether she was going to be able to even keep her job to being the right hand of her boss. And in fact, when her boss later on got a promotion to general manager, asked my wife to come along as her right hand. And that was the point at which I realized kind of the value of of this wonderful aha, which had been preceded by what felt like a terrible drought when I did not know what to do. Mm, my goodness. And so did you implement some of those strategies and transform your experience? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to save that for later. But, the, but since you asked, I actually realized at that point that I had a deeper mission than climbing the corporate ladder and that was that there were lots of people like me out there who who were simply being held back in what they did because their followership skills were poor and that's when i made the decision to find a way to gracefully exit the company hopefully with a bit of cash which did happen uh get my phd which i did and really make a studied uh discipline of this thing called followership And so about a year and a half after that, I did manage to exit the company uh, on very good terms with a nice package. I did manage to start my PhD, which I subsequently finished. And uh, my wife and I have been working on followership and now integrating it into this whole uh, integrated concept of of these complementary roles of leadership and followership uh, ever since. So, So that failure, really, uh, and the subsequent creative incubation i can call it now but at the time felt like a drought Mm. and aha has really spurred the next 10 years of my life since that time so it's been really quite a fantastic journey yeah it sounds so inspiring and and uh and it's almost like you're at the forefront of of new discoveries really you know about followership about creativity and organizations and you know just this whole new new vantage point I think 10 years ago, we were too far ahead of the wave that that we couldn't even necessarily see it coming. And it took uh, some of our early clients 
actually wouldn't even let us use followership. It was the F word. Mm, mm-hmm. But our own ideas have evolved since then too. And we realized that it's not really about followership as an isolated thing either. It's about this integrated idea of how do you be your best self in your follower role when someone else is trying to be their best self in a leader role. And that way it's very much like a dance. It's no good if your partners aren't dancing the same dance either Mm -hmm. and trying to dance together. Uh, And so that's spurred a lot of research and followership in the past few years has started to catch up to us, uh, which has been wonderful. Uh, And we're hoping this whole idea of collaborations and and collaborating in this integrated way is also going to catch up because we're still a little bit ahead of the curve in that regard. (laughs) But but it's fun. I wouldn't trade it for anything. So you um, have a PhD in neuroscience? Yes. So can you speak a little bit to the connection between our brain and creativity? Um, Wow, it's huge. Think about it this way. Uh, Animals have three reactions to danger. They can, or to situations. They can eat, they can uh, run from it, or they can fight. Uh, There is a fourth one, but I'm not going to mention it on the podcast, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes. But humans have developed a fifth response, and it's a response that more than anything else, I think, is what makes us human, and that is that we create. We come upon a situation and we create something new. Uh, I saw this wonderful quote on, um, which was written in, in London, England, actually, on a wall, uh, street art. And it says, uh, to be creative means to be in love with life. Mm. It's so beautiful. I would love to share that with everybody. And in fact... A few, I, I think you mentioned that I do some acting and I'm part of a, a local company here in Kitchener-Waterloo. And one of its oldest members, Lloyd Nyland, who only just passed away, was a member of, of, of this company, Kitchener-Waterloo Musical Productions, for over 60 years. He joined in his 30s when his wife and daughter decided they wanted to do musicals. Now, he, he always worked backstage. I think he only ever appeared on stage once. I met him in his late 90s again. Um, after knowing him for many years, because by that time he was in a retirement home. And I said to him, so Lloyd, what are you doing these days? And of course, he's 97. He's not quite as active as he was. And what he said to me is, you know, I still have my projects. I, I don't see so well. I don't walk so good. But at least I still have my projects, by which he meant his woodworking. And for him, the essence of life at the age of 97 was not all these other things that he's lost or couldn't do anymore. It was the opportunity to still be creative. My goodness. That is so moving. I think if we lose that, then we lose everything. Mm. Because that is the essence for me of of being alive. Mm. So what's the best advice you've ever received in terms of owning your creativity? Huh. Hmm. You know, 12 years ago, I wouldn't have had any clue even what that question meant. (laughs) (laughs) Because 12 years ago, I was a very creative person from an ideas perspective, but I had no formal training in creativity. Uh, I'm very lucky to have been part of uh, a company, ThinkX, which which does creativity 
around the world and part of MindCamp, uh, which is Canada's premier creativity conference. Uh, and I've done some research in creativity myself. Um, for me, the biggest revelation of all was that creativity is a discipline. I just thought it was something that I ha- did by happenstance. And one day when I was talking to, uh, to Tim Herson, uh, who is the person who started Mind Camp and is uh, a, a creative genius in his own right, who has a wonderful book called Think Better, all about creativity. Uh, and it was that mentoring from him and rather persistence, because in my own way, I was a bit stubborn, <laughs> <laughs> um, quite a bit stubborn to think, no, no, you just were creative or you weren't. But that idea that you can improve your creativity and that there are real ways to do it. Uh, and at the time, I hadn't even thought about it from a neuroscience perspective. And, and I've done that now as well. But even just the idea that there are ways that you can brainstorm that are better than others was revelatory and changed a lot of the way I think about things. I, I came across this thing called brain writing as opposed to brainstorming. Yes. Is that one of the better ways that you would recommend? Absolutely. It's fantastic. And there's a number of ways you can do it. But just to explain um, to, the, to the people listening to this, brain writing is, is uh, something that we also call silent collaboration. What typically you do is you'll write an idea on a... Um, a post-it note or a, uh, uh, what are those little cards? Index for? cards. Index cards, thank you. And then you, pa- you pass the card on to somebody else, and then they have the opportunity to also uh, build on your idea, or perhaps it makes them think of something else. And so this card gradually goes around the circle, as everyone has filled out one of these cards to start with, and you, you let these cards circulate. And what it does is it allows you to kick off the brainstorming process without having to listen to anybody else first, which often takes your mind in different directions. So it's really about everyone getting that initial creative spark and still sharing, but sharing in a way that respects the introverts as well as the extroverts, uh, sharing in a way that allows you to contribute without being distracted. It's a I like to start off every brainstorming session with five to ten minutes of brain writing. It's amazing how effective it is to kick things off. Amazing. And I think that with that method, it interrupts the possibility for groupthink. And, you know, when one person is dominating the the discussion. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it takes the best. I know there's been some research out there, and I I don't have a lot of truck with it, that nominal groups are actually better than brainstorming groups. And a nominal group is really when you just take the same number of people and ask them all to come up with their own ideas separately, and then you bring them together to debate the ideas. And there has been some research saying that that that's better than brainstorming, and some saying that it's worse. in a sense, brain writing gives you the best of both. Mm-hmm. It'll, it allows you to start with nominal, uh, but in, still in a group setting and in a way that you can also get influenced by other people, but not in a groupthink kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it combines it then with the best of brainstorming. So it's, it's a way to build on both. And uh, that's what makes it so powerful. Can you share one of your personal habits that contributes to your creative success? Oh, mm, Sure. Uh, 
one of the things that I do is I try and follow a process, and there are lots of them out there, but my favorite uh, is called foresight. And in foresight, you start with clarifying. And so to give myself some time to try and clarify the problem first is really useful. Uh, something else that I do, which is from a neuroscience perspective, is, is quite valuable, which is incubation time. And that is to, you want to get all the data first and let it incubate. So don't come back and try and ideate on the problem until the next day. Uh, now, when I was a, an executive, most corporate meetings don't work like that, right? Someone comes into the room, they say, here's the data, and then what should we do? It's a really ineffective way to use your brain. And so it's this kind of rule of providing space between when you get the data and then actually trying to come up with ideas uh, or come up with ideas before you then try and converge and decide which are the good ideas. This idea of building in as much time as you can. John Cleese talks about this as well. He's got a wonderful talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen it. Seen it. And what he says is that the best creative people do two things. First of all, they, they keep creating even when they think they're done. But second of all, they don't make a decision up until the very last second. And the reason they don't do that is because it's that incubation time that allows your brain to chew away, your subconscious to chew away on all the information that really allows you to come to the best decisions. So these are rules that I try and live by. I like the, um, the thing you said about giving space in between the different stages because it reminded me of music. And we have music only because of the spaces between the notes. Mm. That's a wonderful thought, yes. Um, I had a poet friend who made a similar comment about his poetry that but really poetry is about the pauses between the words and mm. uh, it's a very beautiful sentiment. Mm. Is there a person, whether alive or not, that inspires you to be creative? Oh, yes, most definitely. My father. Ah. <laughs> he's um, he's uh, turning, oh, my goodness, what's he turning? He's turning 92. No, he's, he's 92 already. He's going to be turning 93 soon. And when he retired, he started up a whole new business, which was teaching conductors how to conduct orchestras. Uh, he's 92 now and still writing a blog on philosophy, in particular the philosophy of science, but also on the philosophy of words and all sorts of things. He has more ideas in a day and is more creative in a day than I think most people are in a lifetime. And it's always fun to be around him. He, he's, it's just great that that creativity has not only kept him alive, but kept him engaging and mentally all there and fun to talk with. And there's always something new that he's coming up with. It's definitely my father. He's amazing. And do you have a favorite work of art? Oh, wow. This changes regularly. I just, <laughs> <laughs> it does. I just saw the Lauren Harris exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Uh, Lauren Harris was one of my favorite all-time artists. He's so spectacular. Him and Tom Thompson, I think, are two of my favorites. But if, if I got to go with just one, uh, last year my wife and I traveled to Spain uh, and the Netherlands. And in Amsterdam, we actually went to the Van Gogh Museum that they have in Amsterdam. And the Van Gogh Museum, is it's not a huge museum, but it's 
it's spectacular. And I've always liked Van Gogh, but he's certainly never been one of my favorites. But when you reach the very top floor, after starting in the bottom where they begin with his early life as a painter, he only started painting at 27 and he died at 37. Uh, so you start at the bottom and you see his initial sketches and you gradually circle your way up to the very top. And at the very top of the museum in this smallish room is probably the best of his paintings of the lilies. And he did a number of lilies paintings. These were all in the last six to eight weeks of his life he painted these. You walk into there and see that painting of the lilies and you can't help but think that that in 10 years he became possibly the greatest painter ever. It is so spectacular in real life that it is just breathtaking and something I will never forget. Wow. I want to go there now. <laughs> you have to go. Wow, that's amazing. I have enjoyed... Oh, oh sorry, yes. can I add just one more? Of course. If you haven't seen the Sagrada Familia um, in Barcelona... It is a church that will change your mind forever about what a church could look like. It is just, it's, Gaudi is on a, is, is, is on our planet in a sense, but it's our planet made ethereal and wonderful and beautiful. Uh, go see that one too. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I, I've enjoyed our conversation so much and I could talk to you for another half an hour, an hour, or whatever. But it's just been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Elizabeth. Wow. Mark Hurwitz has really expanded my notions of creativity today. There's a saying that there's nothing new under the sun, but Mark's take on creativity makes me see with new eyes. That ability to be continually surprised and inspired is what fuels our innate creative potential but it only happens when we engage and explore play and take risks if you feel you need some of that creative fuel in your life or if you're feeling unfulfilled at work or you're curious about the connection between creativity and well-being call me and we'll chat the link to get in touch with me is bit.ly forward slash call Elizabeth, all lowercase, bit.ly forward slash call Elizabeth, and we'll talk about you and your creativity. Mm-hmm.